Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Chitheads podcast. My guest today is Dr. Kolreet Chaudhry. Kolreet's combined expertise in both modern neurology and the ancient science of health known as Ayurveda has uniquely positioned her as an expert able to pull from the broadest possible base to treat her clients. She is passionate about raising awareness for the need of a paradigm shift in contemporary medicine that focuses on patient empowerment and a health-based rather than disease-based medical system. Dr. Chaudhry is a regular guest on the Dr. Oz Show, where her teachings about Ayurvedic medicine have been applauded by a national audience. Dr. Chaudhry is the author of The Prime and Sound Medicine, How to Use the Ancient Science of Sound to Heal the Body and Mind, which we'll talk a little bit about today. She is also a neuroscientist and has participated in over 20 clinical research studies in the areas of multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, ALS, and diabetic peripheral neuropathy. Her research includes groundbreaking work in stem cell therapies for diabetic peripheral neuropathy and drug development for the treatment of ALS. Dr. Kulreet Chaudhry spends her time doing research in Siddha medicine in Tamil Nadu, India, and seeing patients for integrative medicine consultations from San Diego, California. So hello, Kulreet. How are you? Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm good, Jacob. It's such a pleasure to be here. It's so funny to hear somebody else talking about yourself because <laughs> it sounds much busier than you feel. <laughs> well, you certainly are um, very productive, doing a lot of wonderful things that I'm really excited to talk to you about. And, you. and some of uh, your bio really touches on um, things that I feel very passionately about, such as the health-based rather than disease-based medical system, this idea of patient empowerment um, rather than someone being kind of subservient to the, you know, the doctor who's sort of up above. And, um, and so it's, uh, and we've talked a little bit about that before. So it'll be nice to continue that conversation today. Um, but before we get started on all of that, I'd love to hear a little bit about um, what led you to the work that you do and how you've come to be focused on this intersection of um, Indian and Western medicine. Well, being of Indian descent, that aspect of it has always been a part of our life. But when you look at the Ayurvedic approach, the medicine part really has more to do with how you're living, you know, the way that you're eating. And so it wasn't something that was overt, like we're practicing Ayurvedic medicine today. You know, meditation was a part of our life. Eating a healthy diet was a part of our life. And when we got sick, my mom usually reached for the turmeric and honey before the antibiotics. And so that was always a part of my background. And then when I went to medical school, of course, that all got thrown out because that was folk medicine and unsophisticated. And here I was learning, you know, the newest, the brightest, the best. And so I put that really off to the side and um, kind of left a lot of my foundation for healthy living. And so I paid the price of it after I finished my medical training. I came out feeling toxic, sick and developed migraine headaches. So I always say, you know, life or the cosmos has a sense of humor. So to give, uh, you know, this cocky, young, arrogant neurologist migraine headaches was like just a perfect serving of humble pie. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. I tried to control my migraine headaches with all of the sophisticated new education I had. And the side effects of the medications were so much worse than the migraine headaches. 
So what did I end up doing? I ended up going back to the tradition that, you know, I had grown up in. Mm. And so because of the relief I had in my migraine headaches within, you know, just a few months and the improvement in my energy, the improvement in my creativity, there was just a dramatic life shift when I integrated these very, very simple recommendations and a few herbal preparations that is really where there was, you know, a fork in the road for me professionally, that I could not practice medicine in this um, limited, limited way that kept people hooked on medications for the rest of their life. So that was how my journey, um, or I should really say my return to Ayurvedic medicine began. And so I started doing um, an integrative approach to neurological conditions, and then Kind of one thing just started leading to the other, 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 other. And so the first book came out explaining my approach to neurodegenerative conditions. Um, and then eventually I was invited to be a part. The first, I think one of the first Western physicians to ever be a part of a medical excavation project on the Siddha medicine records, which even predates Ayurvedic medicine. Um, and so that's where I am now. I'm kind of one foot, you know, in this world here and one foot in a world that's 8,000 years old. <laughs> that's incredible. So tell us a little bit more about these uh, talk throughout the book. You mentioned these Siddha texts, which you say are very kind of have historically been only available to um, but a few. So what, you know, what do we learn from these texts uh, or what are a few, I'm sure many things, but what are a few of the kind of fundamental um uh, aspects of kind of the paradigm of medicine that we we learn from these texts? The way I look at it is, you know, if you look at Ayurvedic medicine, which is such a sophisticated medical system and is so all-encompassing. So even just with Ayurvedic medicine alone, people find tremendous relief. When you get to this to the text, and remember, I'm a newbie. I'm just learning what's in there. They're, they're, they've been kind of on a mythical level for most of my adult life. I never thought I would have an opportunity to actually interface with them. Wow, it must um, be so, so exciting. I, it's very exciting. It's it's really kind of, it's, it's overwhelmingly exciting to think that this is going to be a part of my life's journey. Um, so, I mean, what they have said to have hold, held are an area that I refer to as quantum biology. It's, hmm. you know, if you look at Ayurvedic medicine is really addressing the body and the mind. The Siddha texts kind of are approaching things from the inside out. So if Ayurvedic medicine, when I say inside out, I'm talking about that level of consciousness, which even from a quantum level, we know there's something that permeates everything. And so Ayurvedic medicine is purifying or addressing the physical realm, addressing the energetic realm and addressing the mental realm to reach that level of just pure potential energy, pure consciousness from where everything originates. The Siddha approach is dramatically different in that it still has the same cosmology. It still has the same understanding of, you know, human biology, but it approaches things from that inner core outward. So it's mm. starting from a quantum level and then pulsates out. So in that sense, it's a much stronger tradition um, I would say that for most people, we would first start like with more of the physical and mental purification. But when you start getting into therapy, such as like sound medicine, as I talk about, you know, in the book, the shifts are so much faster. And we're seeing this now with the patients that we're seeing in San Diego and through, um, you know, distant healing sessions, that when we're applying the sound healing, 
to many of my patients who've done Ayurvedic medicine for like fifth, you know, uh, five to ten, um, they're having such profound effects in such a short period of time. And that is the Siddha component. Hmm. Wow, that's so powerful. So, you know, when you start talking about um, this idea of kind of a fundamental energy vibratory field, you call it by a number of things in the book. And of course, there's um, so much precedent in in the Indian um, contemplative and philosophical teachings. Um, but when you start to talk about that today and kind of the orthodox medical establishment, people start to get really uncomfortable. It's like that's sort of woo woo <laughs> yeah. and out there. And so but but even in the book, you point out that actually there are, you know, um, fundamental figures from the Western kind of intellectual history that have also kind of talked about something like this. So what did it, what is it about our present moment? And of course, things are changing. But what is it about the orthodoxy of the present moment that finds it so difficult to accept this idea of a kind of fundamental interconnectedness that informs our medical health? It's such a great question. And I think it's Jacob, it's hard to answer that question unless you're part of a culture, right? Like if you right. go to different parts of the world, like this was something that really struck me about India, which, you know, it's a country that I love. It's a country I was born in. Um, but when I went there, I realized there were certain things that somebody outside of India could never understand about India unless right. you had to live in the culture. There were certain things that I used to ask, like, well, why don't they just do it this way? But once you're in the culture, you go, oh, now you understand the 100 obstacles to shifting this one practice. Mm. And medicine isn't any different. You know, it's a culture. And yeah. so when you, because from the outside, you would say, look, it looks like the research is going this way. These are interventions that have zero side effects. Why don't doctors just embrace this? But the culture of medicine, first of all, it's extremely hierarchical. I mean, our entire training is extremely hierarchical. And the basis of the teaching or the security of the teaching you would say, is in part, this is what the establishment is going to offer and this is what we're going to accept. And in part, it's to ensure the safety of the patient, right? Mm -hmm. That you do not veer so far off from medical practice or medical norms in order to ensure at least the accepted safety. Now, there's a lot of things that we do in medicine that are extremely unsafe. So I'm not trying to say we're the safest practice, but it's an accepted risk. Mm -hmm. And so part of it is understanding that that is how the entire educational system in medicine is, is set up. But then the other part is understanding medicine as an industry. It depends on, and I know this sounds really silly on one level, but it depends on your ability to code certain things so that you can charge for certain services. So when you start getting into things like sound medicine and you know um, things that, again, they don't have any side effects, but there's not codes for them. So yeah. how, as a medical practitioner, do you even begin to integrate that? A great example of how to break through this is um, healing touch, which is, you could say, an energy modality technique, has had so much research behind it and really shown the benefits for reducing things like cancer pain or um, helping people you know, in the ICU with um, autonomic dysregulation. And so there's actually a code for it. And because there's a code for it, you can bring in those practitioners. So you have to remember kind of the machine of medicine needs for new ideas and new techniques to fit into their existing paradigm. And where we're at now is there's just so much information 
that we're on the verge of a paradigm shift. And that's always uncomfortable because those are sudden changes. Yeah. And any sudden change, and you know this just from your own relationships, if your partner or if your child or if your parent came to you and said, you knew me as this, but today I'm going to be that. It's mm -hmm. startling. The human psyche doesn't transition that quickly. So we're in a place where we are going through a sudden shift. The patients are reaching for things that doctors aren't ready for. And so it's just an extremely uncomfortable and yet exciting place to be because it's the springboard into a completely new way of looking at the human being that offers tools that we never had access to before. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm curious about um, maybe some of your experience. Obviously, you you uh, practice in India as well, where people are much more receptive to this. But and even as the paradigm is shifting, as you're saying, I imagine there's still a little bit of resistance within like the medical community uh, when you're practicing in the United States. Can you talk about a little bit of um, about that resistance and essentially um, what it's often based in and and maybe an experience you've had actually convincing a fellow doctor of, of the legitimacy of some of these practices? So I want to start by making two comments. You will be surprised at that there's more resistance in India to this than there is really? America. Yes, because India is a third world country that looks to America for its future. And so India has adopted allopathic medicine much more strongly than America has. And I had way more difficulty, so much more difficulty practicing and implementing this in India and dealing with the medical community there than I do in America. Now, let me make this clear. Most of the people there practice some form of it. Yeah. So in that sense, it's easier in that they're doing it just because it's ancestral knowledge, ancestral wisdom that's being passed from one generation to the next. But when they get a disease, they generally turn to allopathic medicine as that's the standard. And if, if things don't work out, then they will, you know, pursue Ayurvedic medicine or Siddha medicine. So what I've actually found is that from patient standpoint, they're way, way more receptive. In terms of trying to convince the medical community, you know, Jacob, I'm not a convincer. Um, I haven't <laughs> spent much of my life trying to convince anybody of anything. I have found that the greatest ease has been just going to, you know, the existing demand and just saying, you want this, let me provide it. Now, what did happen, um, especially when I was practicing at Scripps, was many of my colleagues who respected me as a general neurologist they didn't know what I was doing, but they knew that the patients that we shared were getting healthier. Mm -hmm. You know, that I was seeing them, let's say for Parkinson's, they were seeing them for GERD. But as soon as I started implementing what I was doing, their GERD went away. You know, they lost 15 pounds. Um, they were sleeping better. They were on fewer medications. And so I oftentimes had physicians who said, I don't know what she does, but I know it works. So if you want to go see her like before your back surgery, we've seen that her patients have better outcomes. Mm -hmm. And over time, I don't think there's a lot of physicians at this point that would argue against lifestyle medicine that, you know, what you're eating is important, that stress reduction is important, exercising is important. I think in general, most people would say, I may not practice that, but those are good behaviors to embrace. And so there's this change that's happening the big challenge is just if you have been practicing medicine a certain way for 20, 30 years, it's really hard then to say, 
well, I think exercise is good, but I don't know how to prescribe it to you. Right. So I haven't really been the person that has gone into the medical community and said, hey, you're doing it wrong. Because I don't think that's true. I don't think there's a wrong or right. I think you've got to look at yourself as a physician and decide, is this appropriate? I think there's a general trend that more and more physicians are hoping that their patients are adapting healthy habits, but not necessarily being the source of it. Mm. So uh, it was it was beautiful to read. And in, in the book, Sound Medicine, you talk a lot about how you developed, perhaps it was, maybe you'll describe it as kind of a latent capacity that evolved as you became a medical um, doctor. But this ability to kind of feel someone's pulse or to to, uh, to touch a patient and to have this kind of impression or this f- intuition that informed your diagnosis and your ability to kind of see what was going on. And, and it really, it was, it was curious. It made me kind of reflect on the role of intuition in the life of any healer or doctor. And I'm curious if you think that's kind of, you know, one of those things that might, um, you know, uh, uh, separate those doctors who are a bit better at, at figuring things out from those that aren't. And, and, and also, is there a, do you have sort of a, uh, I don't, not, maybe not a a scientific in the traditional sense, um, uh, um, explanation for this, Mm -hmm. but how do you understand your intuitive grasp of things when you kind of are with a patient? That's a great question. I want to say, I think anybody that's good at anything they do, they're highly intuitive people because intuition yeah. is just a human faculty. Yeah. So when you look at, you know, the great inventors of our time or, you know, you look at like the tech world, where are those ideas coming from? Yeah. Right. When you look at Warren Buffett, I mean, you look at, you know, anybody who has really mastered their field, they're typically highly intuitive. I think what of intuition to medicine, it gets a little wonky for people because they think you're not using kind of your logical left-sided brain and you're just looking into a crystal ball and, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. I think, you know, even before I started practicing Ayurvedic medicine, and I think this is true of many of my colleagues who I would consider excellent physicians, you develop a certain degree of intuition. I mean, just as a neurologist, if I didn't already have a pretty strong sense of what was going on just when the when the patient walked through the door, because there's so much of our neurological exam is just by observation, that meant I wasn't paying attention. And so just as a regular, you know, physician, we use a lot of intuition. And you can see this for, you know, the doctors that are just always nailing the diagnosis. They're just kind of looking at the facts and going, wait, hold on, something doesn't make sense. That is using their intuition. Now, what changed for me when I entered into Ayurvedic medicine was I was no longer looking at just the physical symptoms. I was looking at so much more. And so my intuition started to pierce, you know, deeper information. And as I started to look for more and more and more, and that's, again, the beauty of of Ayurveda and even more so with Siddha Medicine, is they really look at where do the roots of this disease come from? And even in the field of epigenetics, we now know that a catastrophic event, like a fast, um, you know, a, a heavy heavy famine that re- resulted yeah. in prolonged fasting, involuntary fasting, you know, for one generation, we can see some of the implications biologically in their family line. 
And so that is also information that is held somewhere in the DNA. So I would say just as my my desire to look deeper into the patient, my intuition, my intuition just followed kind of where my attention went. It was really just my attention went deeper. Mm. And when you say, is there a biological model? Actually, when you look at the bio, the human biofield model, which is an emerging model in medicine, um, that is looking at the human being no longer as just skin and bones and a bunch of thoughts, but that there are these energy fields around the human being and we can measure them. When you start to look at that and you start to look at, you know, what are fields? Fields like waves, right? They carry information. If we are just a bunch of waves carrying information, well, then that information should be, we should be able to tap into that. You know, that information should be translatable in some way. And so when I first started looking at the human biofield model of, um, of human biology, that just made so much sense to me what was happening when I would see a patient, that I was just tapping into information that is stored in that human being, in that person, as information that can be read if mm. you have your attention on it. You know, it's kind of like if there's a book behind you and you don't know there's a book behind you, you wouldn't read it, right? But as soon as you turn around and look at it, all of a sudden you go, oh, here's more information. So it's the same thing. It's just really kind of attuning your attention to these um, biofields that holds information about the person that is ultimately translated into biology. And that's why it's so important. Because they'll come in explaining the biology. I have chronic stomach pain. I can't lose weight. I have, you know, skin conditions. They're explaining the biology. And then my job is to figure out where did that come from? What information is stored in that person that would unlock the problem? Yeah. So let's let's talk about one of the examples of these. And you've already mentioned it with regards to the experience of famine in one's um, ancestral history. So one example you bring up is this um, uh, patient who came to you and they were very, um, they looked kind of almost malnourished, extremely skinny and kind of hunched over. And, and you had this um, this kind of instinct or this intuition that there was famine in the history or some kind of, um, you know, point of starvation and, and lo and behold, there was. Um, but when, when that information comes to the surface, you know, it's sort of like, well, what do I do with that? So f from, you know, the perspective of your medical approach, how do you begin to intervene then for, um, for, for someone like that? That's a great question. So we always start with the physical. So we always start with first, you know, taking the steps to strengthen her physical body and then starting to start with like the mind. So in her case, you know, we started meditation and this is where the sound healing came in because she started using a um, bija mantra, which is a form of sound that you use on a daily basis to help and release trauma and, and, and limiting and, and non-nourishing thought patterns from the mind. Yeah. And so we went into that and, you know, then we started to look at, okay, like what, what is going on in her immediate environment? Like what's going on with her relationships and so forth. So you build from the body outward and then eventually this, and you know, she had seen many physicians, I think she had seen like 25 physicians before she saw me. Wow. Um, and then we finally, you know, this nugget as like everything started purging and she was improving by the way through this, but it was really small gains for the amount of effort she was putting in. 
And then the final nugget, the final nugget came in about the um, ancestral karma. And I'll never forget like the day that I asked, cause she was just like, what, like, where is this coming from? And I'm saying, this is just what's coming out of your pulse now. And I think what hit home for her was when I was able to actually describe the family member, like this is just the image that's coming out. And in that case, this is where having access to some of the ancient cultures is really helpful because there are solutions in the ancient cultures for, and when we say karma, karma, you could just translate as it's a vibration that's been put into motion. Mm. And so when you are trying to, that's all karma is. It's a vibration put into motion that now has physical presence. And so if you understand what the karmic pattern is, in this case, you know, it was this um, great famine that had happened and the impact it had, you can set into motion a vibration in the opposite direction. And so for her, we had decided, well, what about feeding the hungry? You know, what about taking some steps to help people that um, are unable to provide food? And so those were the steps that we took. And so that's just an alternate vibration set into motion to help to negate that existing vibration that's been passed on from one generation to the next. So up until that point, though, really everything else is accessible to you know any physician that wants to do this, like making the dietary changes, making the lifestyle changes, adding in the stress reduction. And then when, when there was improvement, but not complete improvement, um, that was when, you know, the last bit of it came out. And that's not unusual, Jacob, that things come out in layers. Yeah. You know, when you're working with somebody, things oftentimes like you, you go from kind of the outside, you know, in. And so this was like a deep karmic nugget that was held deep, deep, deep within, you know, you can say deep within her human biofield. But man, when we address that, it's like things just started shifting. All the other stuff that she was doing, which was really important, were suddenly having dramatic benefits. It's like somebody opened a gate, and now all of the actions that she was taking could actually meet and hit their target. Mm. Wow, that's such an incredible case study and example. Um, so, uh, you know, in your in your book, you talk obviously a lot about um, vibration, sound medicine, um, and and so I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the biology of sound for those that you know, because of course those who already are are convinced or already have experienced the power of mantra, the power of chanting, um, you know, they don't need really to be convinced, but then there's, you know, we have the segment of the population. They like these sort of scientific, um, uh, <laughs> reflections of, of, of things that of course other cultures have known for thousands of years. Um, so, you know, you have this great chapter on the, on the biology of sound. So how, can you talk a little bit about that and how that, essentially explains, or at least in a certain, um, through a certain kind of discourse, how mantras work. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm one of those science geeks that even though I've been doing, you know, mantra meditation since I was nine years old, it wasn't until I wrote this book that I, I had like a whole new level of respect for it. Now I've done it, um, you know, religiously for most of my life. I mean, very, very, very disciplined it was not until I read this book that I was like, oh my gosh, this is an amazing practice. So even for those who are practicing it, I think when you understand the depth 
of the truth of this, there is something that helps to further support your practice. Oh, definitely. So in yeah. terms of the biology of the sound, it's really important to keep in mind that we're built for sound, okay? Mm. So when we say something like, does sound medicine work, um, you're built for it. And if you need any convincing, just look at the way that sound <laughs> affects your life. Yeah. You know, simple examples like, uh, the leaf blower outside when you're cooking or trying to work and how agitated you get. You're not just mentally agitated. You'll notice you're starting to clench your, you know, your, your, your mouth. You're starting to tense up. Your neck is, neck is getting tighter. There is a biological translation of that stress. Now imagine walking into a room and your spouse, you know, first thing comes out of his or her mouth is um, they're yelling at you that has an immediate biological effect versus first thing that comes out of the mouth is just, I'm, I love you so much, I'm so happy you're home. And so when we notice how much sound affects us, it's hard not to think of that there must be a biological mechanism in our body that translates sound into biology. And that is the area of research that we're gaining more and more information about how sound can be translated and is likely translated into electromagnetic field impulses. And again, we're talking about energy fields. Electromagnetic fields, they're translated to every cell, I mean, in less than a second. I mean, this is instantaneous information. Mm -hmm. And our cells actually have these structures called primary cilia, and I'm sure we have many more. This is just what's been found so far, but yeah. you know, have to keep in mind that you start doing research only when the science changes. But yeah. we have these antenna-like structures that pick up vibration and change biology because of it. So we're completely wired to receive sound and to react to sound. The question for me is, if we're wired for it, why are we doing this in a way where it's passive, meaning we're just receiving sound as the environment discharges? Why are we not doing it actively by actually having a daily sound practice so yeah. that we can take full advantage harnessing of it? Harnessing it, yeah. Yeah, why aren't we harnessing it? That's incredible. I mean, you know, I love how you started with just kind of very um, – basic examples that everyone everyone understands on this kind of you know introductory level just how much sound affects us and i mean anybody who's gone to a concert or you know listened to um whatever type of music moves them and is brought to tears i mean you just, you know how powerful it is and it's it's interesting how in at least in western culture it seems like um sound has become sort of relegated to this that's like entertainment you know music is in this kind of entertainment and so because it gets categorized in that way we've lost this understanding of its fundamental significance yes because it's become magical we forgot that it's scientific and that's yeah. one thing i love about the siddha tradition because they saw life as extremely magical but they understood the science behind it you know, so there was these, there were these groups of, I call them quantum biologists, just that's how I relate to them. But they were also poets. And they understood kind of the, you know, the absolute mystical nature of, of the world, but they understood also the mechanics of it. And so they were able to marry those two worlds. And I always thought it was kind of um, funny 
that in medicine, in modern medicine, we use sound technology. It's not that we don't use sound. Ultrasound is a form of sound therapy. Lithotripsy, which is used to break up kidney stones, is a form of sound therapy. But we only use inaudible sound. So those are both technologies that use frequencies that you can't hear. But now the human being, and the human being is receptive to sound that you can't hear. Those are still sound waves but we're really receptive to sounds that we can hear because we have additional organs that are wired to capture those frequencies and to translate those to the brain and then simultaneously send out that impulse to every single cell. So why would we not use audible sound that we are actually engineered to receive? Because when people say, well, what is sound? I said, it's not just what you hear because keep in mind, Dogs hear frequencies that we cannot, so we can't say what they're hearing isn't sound. But yeah. instead of just using the frequencies that are inaudible for human beings, which still have medicinal value, you know, we, we're, and we're actively using them, why not use the frequencies that we can hear? And this is where you know, mantra meditation is so powerful, because these were frequencies that were understood to have an extremely positive, profound effect on the entire body in such a short period of time, you know, in the course of like 20 minutes a day, you could begin to alter your biochemistry. So when I first read this to the text, when they were talking about mantra, it was so beautiful. It was so poetic that I thought they were just describing this poetic impact. And then as I started going deeper and deeper into the research of it, I realized that nothing they wrote about was just simply for poetry. It was all a scientific description of how sound literally changes every single cell of your body. Mm. I love that kind of collapse of an easy distinction between like what you would call the humanities or poetry and, um, and science. I think it's just so beautiful. Um, so I want to circle back to something that you had mentioned a bit before this idea of non-nourishing thoughts. And I feel like it really connects to, because if you think of mantras sort of like, the repetition of something that's, you know, manifesting a kind of certain vibration or equal yes. sense of equilibrium, then those non-nourishing thoughts might be like the curse version of that. And, um, but I, I, I want to ask you about this because one thing that I always bristle at, um, in the world today <laughs> is this kind of, you know, like with everything, there's a, there's like a legit version and a silly version. And this idea of the secret where it's like, if you just think, you know, your the the reality you want to manifest, it will come true. And it's like, yeah, okay, well, there are also sort of like, you know, socioeconomic th uh, situations and structures of power that, you know, um, situate us in particular ways. And, 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 and so while, of course, there is some legitimacy to this idea, um, and that's what I want to ask you about, you know, where do we get into kind of problematic territory there when we go from, from something like, um, flipping the non-nourishing thoughts into nourishing ones versus like, you know, I am a book with wings, therefore I can, you know, I'm going to fly away. Right. And... <laughs> so this is a very, very, it, it's a very good question because this is something that I have definitely hit upon with um, patient populations also who feel, who feel the blame, mm. you know, um, th there's a lot of self blame, which I think is never helpful because now they're saying, oh, well, I know I manifested this. And I've said, well, let's just back up for a second. So I would say it's never a positive thing to be repeating negative thoughts to yourself. That always yeah. works against you. 
And when you do start to have a turn in your biochemistry from having more positive vibrations, and then I'm going to just use mantra practice, mm -hmm. which I think is it's much, much stronger than an aphorism. So an aphorism is something that you train the mind to believe, and you can potentially manifest it if all the conditions are met, and I can talk a little bit about that, but you don't transcend the mind. And that's not actually the goal of human life. Now, it's not that the ancient traditions were against manifestation, but they just saw that as yet another trap, mm. that you're still just functioning within the realm of the mind. And it's really beautiful because when you look at the Siddha tradition, they really understood how to break the laws of time and space, but they didn't amass massive amounts of wealth. They had transcended all the things that were part of this created world, which was, in, you know, from their perspective, that's all created by the mind. So to get even overly fascinated with manifestation is still to be trapped in the cage of the mind. Mm. And so it's not that they don't have techniques or that they just go, this is going to get you nowhere. You will still be stuck in this same illusion, this same cycle. There is a way to transcend it. And in the transcendence of it, you have even greater appreciation for the treasures that cannot be seen by the mind. So let's go back to this idea. Let's say, though, you just really say, I really want to manifest this one thing. Well, when you look at the view of the human biofield from the ancient perspective, there still has to be like a physical purification that happens. So let's say if that person already has those channels opened, that's going to be a lot easier to manifest, okay? But if those channels are blocked, and remember, the physical body is the ultimate representation of the human map. So when there are channels blocked in the human body, you will see those in your physical experience in terms of your job, in terms of your relationships and so forth. So we first start with just let's open up these physical channels. And I have seen this with my patients that as soon as we start opening up the physical channels, a lot of things in their life start changing spontaneously all spontaneously towards desires they had, but they're not sitting there. I don't want to do that. But they're just living their life, opening these channels, and those desires that they wanted are starting to spontaneously happen. And that's how it should be. It should be a spontaneous process. But then there's another level, um, which is really important that we oftentimes forget in the Western world. And that is, what was the soul's intention? that the soul comes with an intention that is part of that human evolution. And that intention can trump the desire for, let's say, some physical or some material manifestation when the soul came maybe to do one thing, but the human being in a non-connected state can only think about, oh, but I want to marry that person. But the soul's intention was something else. Mm. And so part of manifestation from the ancient perspective is to first connect with the soul's intention. And when you connect with the soul's intention, your desires are now automatically in alignment for your highest good, the things that you wanted before you became physical. And when you become in alignment with that intention, that is really where, where I would say, what you're seeing in the secret starts to happen, but it starts to happen very spontaneously because now those physical channels have been cleared. You're in alignment with your soul's intention. But at that point, you're usually not 
ruminating over the Lamborghini you're driving. Like some, <laughs> you know, something bigger starts to happen and it's less of even like your desire versus you getting pulled into certain directions and you're not even looking for the goal, but the pull is what you're after because mm. that pull is filled with so much energy and so much magic and so much life that oftentimes it's that transfer of energy going through us that we're oftentimes looking looking for when we are asking for material things. We're thinking that's going to be that things that's going to be the item that makes me happy. But it's actually just that flood of energy that goes through you that connects you to something so big that is so joyful and so blissful just in the experience of it, not in the fulfillment of anything. And when that becomes your goal, and that is the goal that is described in these ancient texts, then the manifestation is spontaneous, but you stop trying to manifest the types yeah. of things that you used to think would make you happy. And there's more of an allowing, and this is where the idea of surrender comes, which a lot of people from Western cultures don't understand all because they're like, why would I give up my free will? It's not getting up your free will at all. It's surrendering to something much bigger, a bigger aspect of you. Yes. I know that was a lengthy answer. No, but I no, hope- Corey, that was actually just so incredible. And um, the way you um, also distinguished between um, mon- mantra and aphorism, I'd never heard it I, you know, I feel the same way, but I've never heard it expressed that way. This idea of just repeating an English aphorism, for example, that a lot of people then say, oh, that's my mantra, right? Yes. But you making this distinction that really comes down to the level of a, a difference between manifestation and connecting to the soul's intention is just really, it's so clear and powerful. So you're talking about the soul's intention. I know that those listening, the next question is, well, you know, Dr. Chaudhry, how do I connect to my soul's intention? But see, this is the beauty of this. This is the beauty of this design. Now, first of all, there's lots of different traditions. I'm sharing the one that I know the most about and the one that I have at least been told from my, you know, spiritual and wisdom traditions um, is the fastest. And that is this practice of, of mantra. And I mean a real mantra, as you mentioned, not something that is an affirmation, but something that is a resonant frequency of nature that has the capacity to transform both body and mind by inner repetition, inner or external repetition on daily basis. It is a, you know, to use kind of more of the traditional um, wording, it's it's a divine frequency, or you can say it's a cosmic frequency, but it's a frequency that is beyond human language. So what I have found is when you are involved in a mantra practice with devotion. And Jacob here was a big key for me because I had learned a mantra practice very, very early on in life. And, you know, and I wouldn't call my life like uneventful. I wouldn't call it something where I was like, oh, well, this life has just been a total loss. You know, I'm just going <laughs> to throw this one off and go hopefully the next one. You know, I would say that my, my life has presented to me a lot of situations that I've been extremely grateful for. But I think in part because I learned my meditation practice when I was so young and it was kind of before the concepts of devotion really made sense to me. It wasn't until later on in life when the concept of devotion came in and that when my mantra practice kind of united with this deep sense of devotion, I mean, just this deep inner love for life, this deep sense of gratitude for life that then something really huge started to happen. 
And then something began to accelerate. And I wouldn't say that it was comfortable. I mean, there was a lot of purging that I was like, really? More purging? Um, but it was like something was pulling me at such an accelerated rate for connection. And I think that is, at least from what I have learned, the fastest way to do it in our time right now. Yeah. There used to be other techniques, but with our current modern environment, it's really hard to do like some of the purification techniques they recommended just because our environment's so polluted. So that's a really hard way to go. Um, some of the techniques would require like six to seven hours of dedication on a daily basis. Most people don't have, you know, that luxury. So this is just something that really fits into our daily life, but it does require eventually, and it doesn't mean that you have to understand the concept of devotion up front, but eventually if you want it to get to that point where something just reaches out and pulls you in, in such an envelope of love, but ferocity. I mean, it's just such like a mama bear going, I've got you. Mm. That comes when that mantra practice finally unites with devotion. And for everybody, it just happens at a different time. I mean, I, I did a mantra practice for, I think like almost 25 years before, you know, that happened. And for other people, it might be the first time they do it because they have cultivated that in other areas of their life. So it's really easy for them to, you know, connect with. Mm. Wow. I'm totally on board with what you're talking about, that connection between mantra and devotion. Um, and I'm, but I'm wondering when I, sometimes when I hear devotion or people talk about devotion, um, it, 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 they invoke it in this kind of way of sort of almost just like a, uh, maybe overflowing sentimentality, right? This, and so some <laughs> people might feel that, well, I don't really feel that, you know, it's, it's hard enough for me to just sit down and do the mantra. I, and then now I have to fake this feeling of, of oh. being really devoted. So how do we cultivate devotion so and how is devotion different ever, from that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought this up. It's never faked. I mean, you're, mm. you're trying to fake this to yourself, mm. right? So everything that you know is what you know. I mean, you're not trying to connect to anything that's outside of you. And so I'm a great example of that. I'm an extremely intellectual person. Um, I love, you know, learning. I love the field of the mind. It took me a long time to understand the power of devotion. Mm. And when it came out, I think there were moments where I felt really sappy. But um, for the <laughs> most part, you know, like we're all, I was just so moved by nature. You know, there were moments where I was just so moved by nature um, you know, just looking at like the perfection of a strawberry. And by the way, I didn't spend hours doing this. It just means like nature started to come alive to me yeah. in like in a way that it had never come alive to me before. My relationship started to come alive to me in a way that they had never come alive to me before. Um, and for me, I couldn't be sappy. It's not my nature. Um, but what I found was just you know, there's really, really heavy, heavy things that we go through in life. All of us, all of us have these heavy, heavy things. But what I found was that there was just this ray of sunshine that was always there, that no matter how heavy things got, there was something that was just connecting inside of me where I always felt like it was going to be all right. Even when it wasn't all right, it was going to be all right. And so for me, that was really kind of like how I cultivated the devotion, never something that was sentimental but this really deep sense of something's got me, yeah. you know, some yeah. force has got me and I'm so grateful that I'm a part of it. 
and I do not understand what these next steps in my life are going to look like. And honestly, I feel like I've been thrown out in the middle of an ocean and have no life raft. And that's how I feel. That's how the mind is interpreting this. But something deep inside, like, I know it's got me. Mm. And so that was my experience of devotion was just really holding on to that connection inside that I just knew was bigger than any situation. And it didn't mean like I woke up every morning and was so happy and no, not, not, not at all. It was, I woke up every morning and I had the ears come out. I had authentic emotions come out, but there was something always deep inside me that I could connect to, you know, and maybe it'll look again different in 10, you know, in 10 years. Whereas like my husband's devotion is really different. I mean, he really has that deep, almost like Pollyanna sense in life, like is happy 99% of the time. Oh, goodness. Um, and that's, I know, I know. I'm like, it's nice until you have to live with it all the time. And then you're like, I never felt like a grumpy person until I got married to him. I'm like, am I grumpy or am I just not hysterically happy all the time? Um, but that really is genuinely like who he is. But when you look at like my devotion manifests in the books that I write, or the interviews that I do, or the work that I'm doing in, in the world. And he is always like just my biggest fan. He goes, but gosh, look what you do with your devotion. It's so beautiful how you share it. So it, it just, it's different for each person. And the big thing is don't mood make, don't fake it yeah. because your devotion may come out in a way that doesn't look like devotion to other people, but that's your genuine devotion. Like my, mm. my, my life's work the work that I do is absolutely an act of devotion. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's such a great insight because I, yeah, I'm glad you said that about just the variability of devotion because, you know, I think, uh, there, there are some times when it feels like, oh, oh, that person has this very externalized sense of devotion. And, and if I don't feel it, I feel the need to kind of approximate mine to someone else's. And so I think that's a really powerful insight. Um, so this has been a fabulous conversation, and uh, I want to actually ask about something because I'm just really curious, um, just personally, I've had um, experiences with, uh, well, my grandmother was um, passed away from Alzheimer's or mm -hmm. Alzheimer's-related um, symptoms, and um, and so it's a bit of an odd note to end on, I'll admit, but I wanted to talk about, because um, I know you've worked, you know, in the bio, I mentioned that you've worked with Alzheimer's, and I'm just curious about um, how the approach that we've been exploring through this whole episode mm. conversation, how, how does that make us look at Alzheimer's differently like as a disease in this, you know, contemporary yeah. culture. Um, and how does it also offer us an alternative to, to healing it? So the way that Alzheimer's looked at from an Ayurvedic perspective is so radically different. And there are physicians that are starting to catch on that Alzheimer's is not a fixed condition. It can be mutable to mm. some extent. Um, now, a big part of the discussion around this from an Ayurvedic standpoint is at which stage are you catching somebody? You know, when you're catching somebody in the final stages, there's certain things we may be able to do. Like in the book, I talk about music therapy to help with some of the behavioral problems that happen um, in Alzheimer's. And so at each stage, you have different things that you can do. Um, but if you catch somebody in the earlier stages, first of all, we always start with the physical body. So there's always first looking at what are the dietary changes that we need to make? You know, 
um, getting rid of the processed food, getting rid of foods that are really reactive like gluten, um, getting them to eat more according to their circadian rhythms rather than randomly. So we always establish those foundational health habits first. And then, you know, the second thing I would begin to do is bringing in sound therapy. And there's a few different ways depending on the state that somebody's in. Um, it would either be sound in the form of a mantra meditation, which would be ideal if the person can do it, mm. um, or if they cannot meditate, they cannot take those instructions, then exposing them to sounds that would just simply calm them down and help to reduce the behavioral aspects. Mm -hmm. And then after those two, then we would look at, okay, so what is left? After we make the dietary changes and we incorporate the sound practice, what other things do we need to address? Like, is it things like constipation? Is, you know, there's still fluctuations in the mood. And that's where we would bring in certain herbs. Now, ideally, like for somebody like yourself, um, I guess I get many patients who say, look, my parents, you know, um, had Alzheimer's. I don't want to get it. And they'll come to me in their 40s or 50s. And so I put them on a program that helps to reduce their risk. There are certain herbs that are specific for reducing your risk of Alzheimer's. I mean, I, I started that in my early 40s. I was, I mean, I'm a neurologist, you know. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I'm going to put myself on the herbs that promote um, you know, cognitive health for my entire life. What are those herbs? <laughs> so the basic ones um, are Brahmi, um, which I mentioned also in my first book, The Prime, um, Shanka Pushpi, which is a funny sounding herb, but it's one of the absolute best herbs for the mind. Um, and then this is an herb that is more for the gut, but the gut is such a huge part of brain health, and that's Trifla. Those are usually the three herbs, and those are those herbs I take on a daily basis, mm. um, you know, in smaller doses. Because I'm not trying to treat something; I'm trying to, you know, just as part of prevention. And it does help with creativity. So they have benefits. It's not just preventive, but they have benefits today. Um, but that would be ideal is to have somebody taking those herbs and have them do a meditation practice, have them do a daily exercise practice, whether it's yoga or whether they're, you know, just walking 10,000 steps a day or start with like 5,000 steps. Those are the those are the foundational works that you would begin with to in hopes of avoiding it altogether or having a very 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 mild case of it. That would be ideal. And then depending on where the person is if they already have it, then we implement a program according to what they're able to follow. Mm. So much great information. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I could talk to you all day, uh, Kulreet, um, but I know you have to go, so I will let you go. But before I do, um, would you like to share anything with our audience about anything that's coming up, um, perhaps how people <laughs> can get in touch with you or keep um, tabs on you um, in the future? Absolutely. So my web website is just Dr. Kulreet Chaudhary. That's Dr. Kulreet Chaudhary. And I'm also present on um, Facebook. And because of uh, the pandemic, I'm actually relocating back to the U.S. and restarting some of the projects that I had done in the past. Um, and so we'll be announcing those very, very shortly. But if anybody wants to follow up on what I'm talking about, I will be posting that on social media. We're just kind of getting into the details of resurrecting some of my um previous previous works which were um really really amazing and fun to be a part of excellent so where will you end up in the united states do you know yet probably san diego just because we have loved ones here and you know we have the ocean here um yeah, and it's just it's it's such a beautiful community here so probably there 
but I say probably because, you know, my life's journey has very much been in trying to connect with that soul intention. I never know exactly where I'm going to be. I wasn't planning on being back in San Diego. So that all happened very spontaneously, but I had a very soft landing year. Um, and so I'm just looking at, okay, all right, life, what would you like to do next? What would you like to play next? <laughs> well, I wish you all the best in that. And I can't wait to see what you're up to next. Well, thank you, Jacob. So I've been speaking with Dr. Kulreet Chaudhry. Uh, we've been talking about her latest book and among other things, Sound Medicine, How to Use the Ancient Science of Sound to Heal the Body and Mind. Kulreet, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Mine too, Jacob. Have a great day.